Okay, let's go to the Bible. We're going to go to the book of Nehemiah, which is where we've been for a while now. We're going to continue. We're actually nearing the end. I think we have maybe one more week after this. We're, we're coming right to the end of Nehemiah, which is pretty exciting. But this morning, we're going to go to Nehemiah chapter 10. They've finished construction a couple weeks ago. And now they're beginning to rebuild community. They're beginning to worship. They are gathering. They're listening to the scriptures taught. And they're rediscovering God's people, Israel, the Jewish people. They're rediscovering um, the statutes, the laws, the, the, the specifics in terms of how God had envisioned them living as a community, worshiping him, trusting him, um, and being different, um, reflecting who he is to the world around them. And uh, it's, it's quite involved. God has a very, very uh, particular vision for, for what life and, and community and, and flourishing is meant to look like among his people. So that's what we're jumping into. There's, there's the context. There's the backdrop. In Nehemiah verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 35, it said, We, the people, obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, uh, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the first of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers, and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Okay, we're going to go ahead and take up our offering now. Don't you love obscure Old Testament passages? I mean, doesn't it get you wondering, like, okay, this, like, I knew there were verses like this in the Old Testament, and clearly they, they had a temple, um, they had a, 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 a rhythm of worship, of sacrifice, and all these sort of ornate uh, ceremonies that were incorporated into like the life, the rhythm of this people. And of course, they needed uh, resources, food and grain and, and money and tithes. It's like the tenth of their income and all of these things to kind of make it happen. Um, you might think, oh, is this, is this the Sunday where the pastor is going to make his argument for, you know, why we need to be tithers and, and give more money to the church? And I reckon I, I could go there. I'm not going to go there. I, I don't think that's the point. I think that would be ra a rather tragic um, route to go down. 
I want to ask the question instead, what is, what is the heart of God being revealed in this part of his people, uh, our history? We are his people as well. We're his kids. We sang it this morning. What does this mean for us? What sort of vision might compel a people to give like that? To give a tenth of their income, a tenth of a tenth, uh, like their, their grain, their, their fruit, their cattle, like everything they have, they're giving the first portion of it uh, essentially to like the temple workers, the Levites and the priests, but in, in order to honor God as a means, a very practical means of saying we trust you, God. You've given us everything we have, and we want to acknowledge this fact and, and, and worship you in this way. What sort of vision would compel a people to live like that? Have you ever been to um, one of these big European cathedrals, maybe in the U.K.? Has anyone ever been to, like, the, what's the, the biggest one in the world? I always forget. It's not Notre Dame. Um, it doesn't matter. I've been to a few, not the biggest one, but these things are awe-inspiring. I've been to Notre Dame in Paris. I've been to St. Paul's in London. Uh, the Cathedral in Canterbury is gorgeous. Um, I went to the Duomo in Florence. Um, I don't know, maybe have you been there, Matt? <laughs> There's, there's one in Milan as well. But these things are absolutely awe-inspiring. And to walk in and to look around and just wonder to yourself, what, what compelled a people to build something like this? What sort of sacrifice must it have taken to, I mean, to pool your resources? And I mean, some of these, these buildings, these structures, would have taken well over a single lifetime to complete. Are you telling me something? A hundred years, some of them. And then I think about what that means for us today. Does God have a, a new vision? A uh, less, lesser vision? Perhaps even a greater one. About 500 years would go by said it a few times along the way, but eventually this, this city, this temple that they, they've, they're rebuilding and investing in, giving their lives to, it'll come down. Eventually the Romans will, will conquer Israel and sack the city, and in 70 AD, the second temple, the one that Herod erected, will be torn down. But before that happens, Jesus will enter into the equation says in um, Matthew chapter 12, as Jesus was walking by the temple, this temple that they're giving their resources to, he was talking to his disciples um, about the regulations, uh, all of these different statutes and, and ways that God's people were commanded, obligated to, um, to adhere to in order to sort of keep this system afloat and he looks at the temple and he says but I tell you something greater than this has come 
when God came down and became one of us, Jesus, something fundamental changed. Something greater was unfolding. So, whatever vision was compelling God's people to give in this way at that time, Jesus would say, that's great, that was good, that was for a time, but in fact, that was actually pointing to something, someone even greater. And so, again, I ask the question, what is that? What is God's vision? What What was Jesus referring to? What is Jesus building today? What are we building Take a look around real quick. Let's look at each other. Let's get awkward. Let's get awkward. This is what Jesus is building. His church. It's not not a cathedral. Some of you some of you look great today, but I tell you, have you been to St. Paul's? It's stunning. It's stunning. I mean, you look good, but what is this great, compelling, beautiful vision that God has for his people that he's, in fact, always had? But what is this greater thing that Jesus was talking about? What is this building? You know, of course, just to be theologically accurate, um, when Jesus looked at the temple, he actually said, this temple's coming down. But in three days, it will be raised back up. And of course, he was talking about his own body. And because of his work on the cross, God came down, became one of us, suffered and died for us. So instead of animals being sacrificed in the temple to make atonement for the sins of the people, God said, I'm going to do it for everyone once and for all. That's why Jesus was referred to as the Lamb of God. And so we no longer needed a temple because God himself was going to inhabit human flesh. Kind of like how he inhabited that sacred place, the most holy place in the temple. Only he was going to do something perfect, eternal, and he did in Jesus. That's why he died on the cross. And then three days later, he came back to life. This was the greater temple, the greater thing Jesus was talking about. But then Jesus goes on to say, that's not all, because I'm going to come back to life, and then I'm going to inaugurate this sort of new age of the Spirit, this, this work where instead of God dwelling in temples, I'm going to build what Jesus refers to as the church, or elsewhere, Hebrews, 1 Peter, Ephesians, the church is referred to as the house of God. We're it. We are the body of Christ. I think it's already been said a few times this morning. We are the house that Jesus is building. We're that thing that he was envisioning. The greater house that Jesus built. So what do you think about that? It's getting moist. I better hurry up. What is, what is the church? What is it? Tomes have been written. Sermons have been preached. I've preached a couple myself. Like, what is the church? What is it really meant to be? 
The church is a people. It's a community. It's a network of relationships. It's like a family. It's, it's friendships. Friendships oriented around who God is and what he's done for us on the cross. We're a Christ-centered, a cross-oriented group of friends, a family, a community. That is the church. And as we look to Jesus and we consider this vision that he has and how he's enacted love before us, for us, on the cross, this, this forms our ethic, this informs our vision for the kind of relationships that we're aspiring towards. We're a community that is learning to live out a cross ethic, a cruciform lifestyle. It's the kind of community when someone comes along, they, if they're lowly, if they're weak, if they're marginalized, if they're the kind of person who society looks at, the quote-unquote world looks at and deems to be not so valuable, not worth too much, doesn't bring much to the table, the church comes around that person and lifts them up. And they say, you, you person that no one sees, you person who's been written off, you take the seat of honor. You're the most valuable. In God's weird, upside-down, wonderful economy of the kingdom, the person who's least becomes greatest in the kingdom of God. The marginalized, the worthless, the lonely, the invisible gets to take the seat of honor. This is 1 Corinthians 12. It's the kind of community, the church, are the people who, when the person comes in who thinks he's better than everyone else, who's entitled, who's arrogant, who's haughty, is confronted with the truth that actually you're not, and you get brought low, and you get broken. The church is the kind of community where everyone, every single person is valued. Everyone matters in the family of God. No matter what your vocation is, no matter what skill set you have, no matter whether you have a degree or not, no matter how much money you have in your pocket or not, God has given you something that is invaluable. He has a plan for your life. If I can just state it plainly. In the family of God, everyone counts. There is no like, ah, you got a cool gift, but yours is, ugh. Sorry, God must have been distracted when he was forming you in your mom's womb. The family of God is the community that reminds everyone that God has created you for a reason. In fact, he has custom-designed meaningful work for you to do. You get a reason to live. Every breath matters. The church is the community of Jesus where you matter and you're valuable. If you're low, you're brought up. If you're arrogant and self-righteous, you're brought down. You have a reason to live. This is the family of God. What does it cost to build this house? 
What does it cost to build the house of God? I love how chapter 10 ends. We will not neglect this house of our God. What does it cost to build the house of God? Oh, it's costly. It's extremely expensive. I can tell you how much we paid to buy our church building around the corner. She got a killer deal, in my opinion. How much does it cost to actually, to build the actual house of God? Someone already shouted out the answer. Jesus' blood. God sacrificed the most valuable thing, his own son. He paid the mortgage in cash on the spot. Paid for. Done. And then Jesus begins to invite everyone to the party. This, this is the, um, the genius of God. He pays for everything. Then he says, come one, come all. Everyone's invited. If you're looking for salvation, if you're wondering why you're here, if you need to know your matter, if you're looking for a place you don't have to hide, then you're invited to the party. And then you might show up. You might take your place at the seat of honor, and then Jesus has to kindly and firmly ask you to go sit at the kitty table. Or you might sit at the kitty table because you feel unworthy, and Jesus says, no, you come sit up here at the head table with me. And he sorts all that out and begins to work on our hearts. It begins to form us and change us and do something incredible inside of us. And then he says, now, let's go. Let's go change the world. Let's go share my love with the world. And we say, well, where are we going? How are we going to do it? I'm going to teach you how to lose your life. And you might think, but wait a second. I thought it was free. I thought, I thought you paid for everything. I thought you were just going to bless me. I thought, I thought that this, was, this was it. This was the climax. I can, I can remember giving my life to Jesus and coming to church as a 24-year-old. Grew up in church, kind of know the, knew the deal. But then I, I met Jesus in this very personal, real way, and something, something was happening on the inside of me. Like, I was changing. I started to feel convicted of my sin. It was terrible. It was absolutely miserable. But good. Really good. And I went to church. Some guys that I met on my university campus said, why don't you come to church? Never mind, we'll just show up at your house Sunday morning and you'll come to church. And I found this church and I was so enamored with these people. I'd look around. This was, uh, what, 1999, early 2000s. I was a part of this church where people rock suits and ties. <laughs> so I'm like, Dude, these people are like next level. And everyone wants to sit on the front row. And the, the pastor's super charismatic. I remember the day, get this, so this was like in L.A. I, this is, this is going to date me a little bit. But you guys remember A.C. Green, the Lakers? He was like, he used to play with like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Like he was big time. I can remember the day where he walks in to our church. Because we were in L.A. This, this was A.C. Green's church. This dude was like 10 feet tall. Like he rocked up in a Hummer. Super cool guy. And I'm like, dude, I, I, have, I have found the coolest church on the planet. This was, and I thought everyone was perfect. I thought everyone was amazing. I thought it took me probably at least a year to realize that these people were just as messed up as I was. 
Jesus um, was helping me to see that the church wasn't the place where the perfect people hang out. It's where broken kids show up with their shame and begin to lay their junk down at the foot of the cross. And I realized that the church was hard. It was free to get in, but once you came back, Jesus got to work teaching me, this is how you die to yourself. Following me is going to cost you everything. This is how Jesus builds his church. You say, am I obligated? This was the word that we read in Nehemiah. We were obligated, twice the words used. We are obligated to give our tithes. We are obligated to give all these things. I mean, a lot of resources. We're talking well over 10%. Okay, I don't know, I, I've not done the math. But they were giving sacrificially. The house that Jesus is building doesn't use language like obligation. uses language like grace and love, where we're compelled as an act of gratitude and worship to give everything we have, not because we're obligated, but because we've been rescued, because we've been included, because God is pouring his love into our hearts. And if you've never experienced this, then don't bother giving because there will be a major drag. Instead, come to the party free of charge, surrender to Jesus, give him everything, allow him to start changing your heart, experience his love, see what it feels like to bear your soul to the one who doesn't judge or condemns you, but says, I see you and I love you more than you will ever, ever fathom anyway. And then see how joyful it is to give after that, that experience. The house that Jesus is building, it's this, guys. It's this messy, weird, awkward, lovely lot of us all. This is it. This is what he's building. And when a community like this can begin to build relationships that do that stuff, where the low get brought up, the high get brought down, where everyone counts no matter what your skill set and no one has to hide. When we figure that out, when we begin to like lay down our lives for each other, when we begin to relinquish our rights and personal preferences so that we might put the interest of others before ourselves, this is all the language of the New Testament. When we learn how to die to ourselves because Jesus died for us, not because we're obligated, because it's our expression of gratitude and worship, the house starts to get built up. And it's amazing. It's compelling. It's more glorious than any cathedral you'll ever go to. In theory... That's the journey. That's the vision. That's the greater thing that Jesus calls us to be a part of. This is the house that God is building. What does it cost? It costs everything. It costs nothing and it costs everything. But it's not about the amount as much as it's about the state of our hearts. Let me finish with this thought. Jesus confronts some very pious individuals. He did this quite a bit, actually, in his ministry. At one point, he's talking to some Pharisees. 
These guys are very religious. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, you give 10% of your mint, your dill, your cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, i.e. justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's not so much about how much we give, how much of our life we lay down, how much we sacrifice, as it is about how we sacrifice. These guys, they were actually upholding the Nehemiah standard. They were doing it. Like in Jesus' times, they're like, Dude, we got to keep the temple going. We got to keep giving. We got to keep sacrificing. We've got to like give everything. And we've got to be like microscopic about it. And Jesus is like, you're missing the point. It's not about that. Yeah, do it with the right heart posture. You're missing the point. It's not about sacrificing for the sake of sacrificing that you might feel moral or pious. It's about mercy. It's about getting God's heart. It's about being faithful to one another as an expression of worship because this is who God is and what he's like. In Mark chapter 12, we find the widow entering the temple. Jesus is sitting right across from the, the offering box. I'm pretty sure the temple had a blue offering box. And Jesus, this had to have been awkward. We're told that he's sitting right across from the giving box, watching people. How awkward is that? What if I started doing that? I could get like a little bench and like sit and just be like, what, what is that? What is that, a 20? Is that a one? And just like watch, monitor the giving. That's what Jesus was doing. It's crazy. And he's watching this old lady. She comes, she has two, two mites, which makes one penny. Would have been one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. It's like nothing. And she puts it in, and Jesus sees what's happened, and he turns to his disciples and says, Did you see that? Did you catch that? That woman just put in everything she had. It's nothing, but it's everything. Because Jesus sees the heart. Let me close on this because it's it's getting properly soggy. The house is where people are invited to come and join this network of friendships where the low are brought up, the high are brought down, where everyone matters and no one has to hide. It's free to get in because Jesus paid for it all, but once you show up, he requires everything in order to follow him. This is how Jesus builds. But he doesn't want us just to give him everything. He wants us to do it with the right heart, because he's really after our heart. He wants us to sacrifice everything, but he wants us to do it in a way that we experience joy. Great, wonderful, life-giving joy. Like the widow, she had a vision. Somehow she got God's heart. She knew what God was really all about. Can we stand together, please? You guys okay? Who's thinking about, dude, you should have finished like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> Help us, Lord, to build with your heart. Lord, to be the kind of community that you, you envision for us. Lord, that we would take seriously your, 
the work that you're doing in our hearts and our lives, Lord, I pray that you would help us to get more of your vision for Grace City in Portland. Wherever your, exi- your church exists, whether it's Door of Hope right across the street, the church on the other side of town, Lord, we pray that you would bless your body and help us, your kids, Lord, to lay our lives down for one another in such a way that when or if the world looks on, they would be confounded. They would be compelled to stop and wonder, what is this love? What are, the, what are these people building? They might want to take a peek inside. We love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.